Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome to episode number 153 of The Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? I'm your host, Chris Tripodi, and with me, as always, is Tony Pauline, and it's officially time to start diving headfirst into the 2020 football season, even without the SEC for another 10 days and the Big Ten for over a month. Obviously, that latter timetable is far sooner than the conference originally planned to play, after postponing the season until the spring. That news just came down on Wednesday. Tony, what do you make of the conference's reversal? Not a surprise at all. I mean, if you read the, uh, if you've been reading my uh, question and answer mailbag at Pro Football Network, I said on September 2nd, I expected the Big Ten would play sooner rather than later. I thought maybe November, but I did say a late October start was was possible. The fact is this, the Big Ten went about their announcement all the wrong way. Caught people off guard, really angered a lot of people. It was bad uh, press. You know, if you want, you can't really argue with the decision, but the way the decision was made, I think they got a lot of blowback from it. And as we're seeing now, because with the uh, with the increased speed of the testing, with the ability to test daily, uh, you know, and, and things that really should have been figured out by college football and by the Big Ten over the summer, was for the the issue was forced after the Big Ten said that they were postponing or delaying their season. Now, uh, kind of comes back into uh, into view, which is why I, I, which is why the Big Ten is going to start earlier than they had originally expected. Yeah, as you kind of said, it wasn't as much the message as it was the delivery, and obviously now we have a lot more information, and there, you know, as you mentioned, a lot more testing and and things like that that really make it more feasible uh, for seasons to kick off in the fall. Obviously, knock on wood so far, things have gone well. Obviously, there's the one postponed game so far, uh, as far as games that weren't previously postponed ahead of the season. Uh, But, you know, it looks like so far things are going pretty well. Hopefully that continues, and, you know, hopefully we can get lots of different seasons started here and and have as normal of a college football season as we possibly can. You know, listen, things are going very well in the NFL. Things are pretty much going well in, in college football. Knock on wood. The situations where Virginia, Virginia Tech had to push back their games, some of the other games, Houston, Memphis had to push back their games. It seems like it may be outside or people from the outside that's bringing the virus into the football facility, something to that extent. We haven't seen situations or heard of situations where games are causing the spread of the virus. Obviously, that's not the situation with the NFL. Like I said, knock on wood. But again, you know, as we get deeper into this thing, you've got quicker testing, more complete testing, more accurate testing, which is the most important thing. Uh, so hopefully it just keeps keeps moving forward. We've got the Big Ten. We'll have to wait and see what the Pac-12 eventually does. We're going to get right into today's show for you all in just a moment after this word from our sponsor. The wait is finally over. Football is back. Now, you may not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. And for us lowly Jet fans, the only good action that we might get 
is things from game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props. Looking quickly, I mean, Cam Newton plus 225 to lead the Patriots in rushing TDs seems like a pretty solid bet as, as just one example of how bet online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And of course, there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Now looking back at two last weekend's games, the first one we'll hit is Louisiana versus Iowa State. Iowa State quarterback Brock Purdy in this one, 16 for 35, 145 yards passing, zero touchdowns, one interception in a really a bad loss for the Cyclones. He was inaccurate early on, but a lot of people might have thought, oh, you know, needs some time to kind of build up some chemistry, needs to get the rust out. He wasn't really hitting his receivers in stride. The timing was off. His throws were getting there late. He was throwing balls over the middle of the field that were floating. Also had several drops on throws that were actually well-placed in the short and intermediate field. Pretty actually got a little bit better in the second quarter. You kind of thought maybe, okay, this is a step in the right direction. He can kind of take this with him the rest of the game. He found a bit of a rhythm, but in the end, really couldn't build on it. Consistently was throwing into double and even triple coverage. He missed throws throughout the entire game. Not all of them easy, but overall, the pass placement was really kind of disastrous at times. Did show flashes. He had a good throw late on a near diving catch by Xavier Hutchinson. Just under eight minutes to play that could have changed the result of this game would have put them in the red zone, but that one falls incomplete. Then he airmails his next pass intended for Tariq Milton. Just really no consistency and a really up and down performance from Purdy in this 31-14 loss. You know, go back to last year, first game of the season, Iowa State pulled out a squeaker against Division I AA Northern Iowa, who's a solid uh, small school program. But the fact is this, you know, Brock Purdy can be an electrifying quarterback, uh, quarterback to watch on the college level. And there are some who project him as an early pick. I mean, they were talking during the game. I have some – he's uh, Brock Purdy showing up in some uh, first rounds and mock drafts. To me, that's foolish. I, I mean, he is what he is. And that's a solid quarterback who makes plays on the college field but just does not project all that well to the next level. He doesn't have the size. He doesn't have the arm strength. As I said during my preview uh, for Iowa State at Pro Football Network, my scouting preview, I mean, he's a sandlot quarterback. And you can get away with that on Saturday. You can't get away with that on Sunday. Louisiana Raging Cajuns, they've got some quasi-decent defensive prospects that aren't going to be drafted, that will be signed as priority free agents. So it wasn't like he was going up a staunch defense or a staunch defense that he may face, may face this year in the Big 12 like Oklahoma. So I, I, I think it's just a situation where we saw what Brock Purdy is. I mean, he's a playmaker on occasion on the college level. He just does not have the NFL tools. And on my board anyway, I grade him as a six-rounder as opposed to someone who's going to be a top 100 pick, which you read elsewhere on the, on the Internet. Now the second game we'll take a look at here is probably one of the more exciting games of the weekend. And that was Arkansas State against Kansas State. Arkansas State pulling up the upset with a late touchdown less than a minute to go to big wide receiver Jonathan Adams, who really had a heck of a game. I mean, that score was his third of the game. He's already through two games, almost to his 2019 total of five touchdowns, when he also had 62 catches for 851 yards 
He's already up to 14 for 163 this year after he went eight for 95 on Saturday, including those three touchdowns. And those stats don't even include a ridiculous near one-handed grab in the end zone. I mean, that's a fourth touchdown right there, and he goes over 100 yards, almost 10 catches. Would have been, you know, a completely insane statistical game. But really, Adams is a guy with sticky hands and excellent size, constantly boxing out opposing cornerbacks. The physicality that he saw at times didn't really seem to affect him that much in this game. Won almost every battle, at the very least, for the next level. He's a potential red zone threat. He also laid a nasty downfield block, planting A.J. Parker on his back to get his running back some extra yardage at the end of a long run in the second half. Now, Adams had a free agent grade entering the season, but really more play like this, especially against a Power 5 team with NFL players like Parker and Wayne Jones in the secondary, could help boost that ranking quite a bit. Well, he didn't just have a, a free agent grade. Scouts gave him a street free agent grade, which means that you know he's one of these guys that probably wouldn't receive a call or they expected not to receive a call right after the draft at maybe a day or two. But when I watched the 2019 film, I thought enough of him to give him a street free agent grade, which basically meant he's on the bubble uh, as far as maybe being drafted. And you're right. If he continues to play this way, he's a guy that if he runs well, Prior to the draft, he's absolutely to the late rounds of the draft. Maybe it's an invite to the Shrine game, hopefully playing the Shrine game this year. To a hot start. That Kansas State secondary is actually pretty good. They got two prospects in there. You mentioned one of them, AJ Parker, that are draftable players. And the amazing the thing about uh, about Adams is he's listed by scouts about six two and a half, two hundred and eight pounds. Even though we say he's a bigger possession receiver, he supposedly has timed in the low four fours in the 40. It's just a matter of transitioning that speed uh, onto the field. So he really has the pieces there. It's a matter of him putting the whole package together on a day-in and day-out basis, on an every-snap basis. Seems to have done it against uh, Kansas State. Let's see what happens moving forward. Two other players got to mention in that game. Forrest Merrill the uh, defensive lineman from Arkansas State, had a pretty strong game, finished finished with uh, two tackles, a half a sack. But the fact is this, he plays nose tackle. He was a guy who's commanding double team blocks in the middle of that Arkansas State defensive line, freed things up for his teammates. He's a guy who played four games last year. Then he had an injury and uh, sat on the sidelines the rest of the season. He's got He's a real try-hard guy with a great motor. Someone who is not the greatest athlete in the world, but you know what you're getting with him as a uh, as a gap occupier, has come back strong from that injury. Someone who could end up in the late rounds of next April's draft. And one other guy to keep an eye on, Kansas State tight end Briley Moore. Had six receptions for 54 yards and a score. Briley Moore last year played at Northern Iowa. In fact, the past three years he played at Northern Iowa. And he was a darn good tight end. Not the fastest guy in the world, not the, the uh, most athletic guy in the world, but someone who may be drafted, if he's not drafted, be signed as a priority free agent, but has all the tools necessary to be a number three tight end at the next level, especially in short yardage situations where he can be brought onto the field as a blocker, which he's real good at, or as a short range pass catcher, as we saw Saturday against Arkansas State. Now, our third review all of them involving a team we discussed last week on our Sunbelt and Conference USA preview. This one is UAB falling 31-14 to Miami. 
for the story in this one, rather than the score or the result of the game, is linebacker Jordan Smith for the Blazers. Nine tackles, two tackles for loss. The first thing you notice about Smith when you watch him is how fast he is off the snap. He gets into the backfield very quickly, can turn speed to power on occasion, even though he does need to add a little bit of bulk to his frame. But he's also under control. He stays disciplined. He maintains his outside contain when that's his responsibility to force the play inside. Did get fooled by a couple zone reads where Miami quarterback De'Eric King got him to attack the quarterback before handing it off to the running back who just went right by Smith. But Smith didn't quit on those plays. He tried to chase him down from behind. He didn't really quit on many plays at all. Really has a relentless motor chasing plays. You talked about Foster Merrill being a guy who's constantly going as a tryhard player. Smith is constantly going too, but he has the athleticism to combine with that motor. And obviously he's put up a lot of production, not only in this game, but he did last year as well. A former Florida Gator from several years ago who transferred to UAB after that whole credit card scam. Um, but really, Smith has the speed to run down ball carriers in pursuit. Did it a couple times chasing Derek King down from behind. Gets good depth on his pass drops as well, even though really only asked to do it a couple times a game. I mean, really an impressive player here, Tony. And really, Smith did nothing to throw water on some of that second-day draft hype that he's been getting in this game. Oh, getting from myself. I don't know too many other people who are talking about uh, George Smith. But, yeah, I mean, he's got all the tools. When I watched the game, there weren't too many splash plays uh, from Smith, which I hope to have seen, especially going up against Miami, especially in a game that was you know, na nationally televised, if you will, on ESPN uh, against Miami, which I thought would have been a, a good showcase game for him. But he's got all the tools. I, I mean, he is a guy, he's quietly consistent and quietly productive on the field. You mentioned his stats from the game, but if you watch it, you wouldn't have known it. He's got a huge upside. It's just a matter of him really just continuing to develop and, and improve from where he was after the end of the 2019 season, where he showed flashes here and there. Now he's got to play at a consistent high level. And if he does, as you said, he's a terrific athlete developing into a good football player, a guy who could be a real good player two or three years down the line. And remember what I said a week ago when we talked about Smith during our Conference USA preview. What I'm hearing is if he has a good season, he will opt to enter the draft. Now, moving on from game reviews, onto our previews for the upcoming weekend, starting Saturday at 3.30 when Appalachian State visits Marshall. Two teams coming off victories in their openers, and also two teams that kind of lack in 2021 draft prospects as a whole in terms of quantity. But despite that, there is an intriguing NFL draft matchup in the trenches in this one. App State defensive end Demetrius Taylor against Marshall offensive tackle Josh Ball. We actually discussed both of these players on last week's podcast in great detail. So check that out for more in-depth analysis of each guy. And the reality is that they are two different players in the sense that Ball is more of the physical specimen who has that kind of physical upside, whereas Taylor may not have that same physical upside, but he is the more polished football player. He's a better player right now. But Taylor is kind of a tweener when you look towards his NFL future. He's just under six foot one. But he makes plays on the football field, regardless of size, regardless of athletic ability. I am really curious to see how he's going to handle the length that Ball has. Ball has about six inches on Taylor, also has the strength and athletic ability to contain him on paper. Kind of a good test for Taylor to see what he can do against somebody who does have NFL-level size, length, 
and athleticism. But Taylor is the kind of guy who tends to step up in these kind of situations and, dare I say, overachieves. Tony, what are you expecting to see in this particular matchup? Yeah, this is a tale of two different types of players. You got Taylor, who is the great player who may be tapped out physically, but he just finds ways to make play. He's a game-impacting player, as we said last week. Go back to that North Carolina film from 2019. He finds ways to make plays. The motor's going on. Then you got Josh Ball, who started his career at Florida State, moved over to Marshall because he had some off-the-field issues, which I'll get into. He's tall. He's athletic. He showed flashes last year, but he was not a consistent starter because Marshall had two players there, two veterans there that they wanted to use as starters. Ball came in, to, uh, was rotated into the lineup, and he did a darn good job. He showed, he was, he showed a lot of consistency last year. Now, uh, Marshall uh, played uh, East Carolina the first game of the season. They destroyed him. This is the first of two huge tests for uh, Ball this year. Appalachian State this Saturday. Then a couple of weeks down the road, they play Western Kentucky, who's got two terrific pass rushers. It'll be interesting to see what Taylor does to try to exploit Ball. Taylor is a, is a heady player. He's a thinking man's defensive end. He's going to try and find weaknesses in Ball's game. It's up to Ball to try and be patient, block with proper fundamentals as he does, and exploit the physical advantage that he has over Demetrius Taylor. It's going to be a real good matchup to watch. I was talking about those off the field issues. Evidently when I was told that when it when he was at Florida state, it was a situation with a domestic abuse type of issue. I'm told it was more of a, he said, she said sort of thing where ball was not, did not get in trouble, but was forced to uh, transfer out of Florida state We'll have to wait and see if there's more details that come out. We'll have to wait and see how uh, you know teams approach it. But for what I'm hearing from teams right now, I gave Ball a fourth-round grade, and they say if he plays real good football this year and plays up to expectations, he could actually move into the second day of the draft because of his skill, because of his size, because people think he can play left tackle at the next level. This is going to be a big matchup against Demetrius Taylor that scouts are going to be watching. Now staying on the East Coast and heading over to NC State, which opens its season at home against Wake Forest on Saturday at 8. Demon Deacons lost to Clemson last weekend, 37-13. Top prospect Carlos Basham Jr., also one of the top seniors in the nation as a whole, didn't make much impact in that game. It was over very early. Did have a sack on the first drive, but more of a coverage tack. Play took like eight or nine seconds to develop into him finally taking Trevor Lawrence down. But also, in Basham's defense, he's facing constant double teams from a team that overall is just way more talented than Wake Forest. And that is the standard now for Basham in terms of facing double teams, even triple teams. Opposing teams know that he is the guy to watch on the Wake Forest defense, and he's the guy you want to eliminate as much as possible. But Basham's going to have a much better shot at success against the Wolfpack this weekend. He does move around a bit, doesn't strictly play one side or the other. So he's going to get to go against both left tackle Tyrone Riley and right tackle Justin Witt, North Carolina State's pair of senior tackles who likely aren't draftable players but could find their way into an NFL camp next summer. Tony, what are you watching for specifically in this one? Yeah, both will be in an NFL camp. Uh, they could potentially be drafted late, but I, I think you're right. They're going to end up as, prior, as uh, free agent types. You know, the other thing about Basham last week, if you watch the game, 
Clemson was purposely running plays away from him. That's how much they respect him, which is part of the reason why the stats were, were, uh, were, were what they are. And as you said, Wake Forest uses Basham in a, in a variety of ways. He's not just a guy who comes out of a three-point stance from one side of the line. They move him around. They stand him up. They ask him to play in space. He drops off the line of scrimmage. But I agree with you. I mean, this game is something that this is a, a potential where he could exploit the North Carolina State offensive tackles make a lot of plays, have a good statistical day. Tyrone Riley uh, is, a, is a former defensive end who was highly thought of in the, in the scouting community a year ago. I want to – maybe I shouldn't say highly thought of. He was a wait-and-see guy. He got injured, sat on the sidelines, came back for his sixth year. If you go back to the 2018 film, when he first moved to offensive tackle, he played right tackle at the time. He showed some flashes, and there were high hopes for him last year. Never came to fruition uh, because of the injury. The uh, other tackle, Justin Witt, he's more of a bigger guy, small area guy, not the most athletic, but someone who, once he gets his hands on opponents, he can control them. Both of these guys are small area type linemen that Basham should be able to exploit. Let's see what happens. I would expect a big day from him. Now for our final preview, we'll stay in the ACC and we'll actually go back to Miami, even though we didn't discuss the Hurricanes in detail earlier in the show. They are going to visit Louisville for a 7.30 p.m. Saturday kickoff. And last week, the Cardinals passing game was working on all cylinders in their win over Western Kentucky. Des Fitzpatrick was one of Tony's week one risers over at Pro Football Network after he went for four catches, 110 yards, and one touchdown. Tutu Atwell didn't really break any of his patented big plays, but definitely an explosive playmaker. Both of these guys and exciting quarterback Mikhail Cunningham face a far greater challenge this weekend against that Miami secondary, specifically cornerback Al Blades Jr. and safety Gervon Hall Jr. Both of these guys have nice size. Hall can play both the run and the pass. And really, he's going to be, he's going to have to be part of that Miami three safety look. They kind of rotate three different guys in and out of the game keep them all on the field at the same time as well. They're going to need to help out the corners over the top against Atwell because really I think Blades' best matchup is going to be against Des Fitzpatrick where his size and his length could slow Fitzpatrick a little bit. The problem with Blades, he doesn't really have the speed to consistently stay with an explosive game breaker like Atwell. So Miami's really going to need some help from that trio of safeties in order to contain Atwell who might end up having the big week compared to Fitzpatrick who had it in the last game. Overall, this one should be fun, Tony. What do you make of it? Yeah, you know Miami's chomping at the bit. I mean, Miami beat uh, UAB. They probably think, you know, there was a relief that they beat UAB. The le- the prior two games they played against Conference USA teams, they lost. This is their first in-conference matchup. Uh, it's not been good for Miami. They got off the snide a bit against U- UAB, so they're going to want a big win here. Uh, I like Al Blades. I grade him higher than most uh, as a fourth rounder. People complain about his speed. I, I think he can play at the next level. I like his ball skills. Obviously, his bloodlines are there. Gervin Hall, I think, is just ridiculously underrated. He's got good size. He's a tough run defender who uh, also shows well against the pass. I think both of these guys are going to be on their game Saturday. A lot of people like Des Fitzpatrick. I mean, uh, I, I would talk to somebody this week. I have him graded as a six-rounder. People I talk to think that he could go much earlier than that. Obviously, if he uh, pick, if he continues the way he played against Western Kentucky, he'll get a senior bowl invite, and it'll be up to a pre-combine workouts. The thing with Fitzpatrick was he started off hot as a freshman, 
at Louisville. Uh, and, and then his game kind of took a step backwards. There was talk that he was going to enter last year's draft. He made the right decision returning, even though it seemed like he was kind of the odd man out in that offense. Fitzpatrick's got the size. He's got the pass catching skill. He's got decent, not spectacular speed. I have him graded as a six rounder. There are some scouts who think he'd go in the middle rounds. It's just a matter of him continuing on and showing the consistency and the playmaking ability that he displayed last Saturday night against Western Kentucky. The, the secondary against Miami, that entire Miami defense is going to, is going to battle him. Uh, this is a big game for both Fitzpatrick as well as the two, the two defensive backs from the Hurricanes. Now, Tony, before we sign off, let's hit the NFL quickly. I actually thought there was some decent football being played last weekend, despite the lack of preseason and the overall limited offseason. And really, some rookies made some early impacts as well. A lot of them were first-round picks, guy like C.J. Henderson, Patrick Queen, etc. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, obviously, in the opening game, had a monster performance. I mean, even second-rounder J.K. Dobbins, who's a guy we've talked about a lot on the show, one of our favorites, scored twice. Sadly, though, when I mention decent football, it doesn't include the New York Jets, who are manhandled by the Bills. 27-17 score is really not indicative of how the game was played. As we know, coaching matters in the NFL. It matters in college, too. But while it seems like the Bills had a plan to attack the Jets, and not only did they have a plan, but they executed their plan, the Jets didn't really seem to have any plan. Or if they did, it was an absolutely terrible one. Obviously, the Bills have a great defense, so you have to give a lot of credit there. They make executing even the best plan hard. The Jets passing game did deal with some injuries all camp, so chemistry was lacking. They had some new pieces moving in and out. But that's not the only thing holding the Jets back right now. You know, a couple things. It's the first game of the season, and a season where there is no there were no exhibition of preseason games. The Jets have a brand new offensive line. They're basically working with brand new receivers and pass catchers. So you had to expect that there was going to be a lot of bumps in the road. I don't think the offensive line played terribly, but you could see that, you know, they, they were, there was some confusion on the offensive line. So you got to kind of give them a pass from that point of view. But from, when you look at it from glass half empty, you know, this doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I didn't expect the Jets to win more than five or six games most this year because of the fact that I'm just not a big believer in Adam Gase. I think what happened at the end of last year when they won five games the second half of the year got the expectations of fans and a lot of people in the organization a little bit too high. I mean, they won those five games primarily on defense and field goal kicking. They did have some, uh, some games, the, the Oakland game, uh, the Giant game, where the offense really took off. But for the most part, it was the defense and the field goal kicking. The defense comes back this year. Not only are they going to lose, are they going to, is CJ Mosley going to be sitting it out again this year because he opted out last year was because of injury, but they traded away their best defensive player in Jamal Adams. So I'm not surprised by what I saw because I've never been a big believer in Adam Gase. Uh, it was last November on this podcast when I talked about how detached Gase was on the Jets sideline during game day when the Jets offense did not have the ball, when the Jets defense was on the field, it was like he was, he had, he had showed no motivation to really be involved in the game. Everyone else ran the team. That was kind of confirmed. If you remember with Jamal Adams exit interview or the, or the interview that expedited 
Jamal Adams exit from the New York Jets in the Daily News about when he when he said that, you know, that Gase is kind of detached. So I was not surprised by what I saw Sunday, primarily because I just thought Adam Gase, I was never a believer in him. I just think he's not head coaching material. I will tell you this. It's funny that you mentioned about how the Jets have had uh, injuries with the passing game. I had heard there were grumblings from the defensive coaches during camp about they thought the Jets should be running the ball more. And the reason was, was because when it was first team offense against first team defense, the first team offense was able to run the ball down the first team's defense's throat. But when it came to throwing the ball, the passing game looked awful. So the defensive coaches were telling people, let's just run the ball more and win on defense because the Jets thought that they were going to have a pretty good defense this year. If that's, if they believe that we didn't see that on Sunday. So there were some grumblings that the Jets should have during camp that the Jets should have run the ball more and basically use the run to set up the pass. We didn't see that at all Sunday. The running game wasn't great, but I think the running game was a little bit more consistent than the passing game. The passing game relied on a few big plays to get the stats that they did. Now you go into week two, Le'Veon Bell is hurt. I think he's going to be out for a while. Be interesting to see what they do now. Yeah, I mean, Le'Veon Bell is on IR. IR this year is obviously shorter than it has been in years past due to COVID. So he only has to miss three weeks. So he could be back in week five. But if the Jets are 0-4, 1-3, they're not going to rush Le'Veon Bell back, especially if Michael P. Ryan is back and healthy by then. They're probably going to want to see a little bit of what they have in their fourth-round pick. I mean, the reality is you said it, you know, a lot of things there that – cohesion is required when you're breaking in a new offensive line, when you're breaking in new weapons in the passing game. And the Jets didn't have the off season to do that. The teams that are going to succeed early this year are probably going to be the ones that have a lot of continuity coming in from last year, just because they're able to maintain what they were able to do. And you talked about the momentum at the end of the season. I mean, you mentioned the Oakland and the giants as teams that the Jets scored on. I mean, those are terrible defenses. Uh, the Jets had a pretty easy schedule down the stretch. Now, you still have to beat the teams that are in front of you, but at the same time, they were able to do that against an easy schedule. This year, schedule is not easy. Bills are a solid team. They play the 49ers this week. It doesn't let up for a couple of weeks, so it's going to be very interesting to see kind of what happens and what kind of progress the team shows, which is actually what Adam Gase is supposedly going to be defined on in terms of his job by the end of the season. That's what Christopher Johnson said on Wednesday when he spoke for the first time in almost a year, said he had full confidence in Gase, that he'd evaluate him based on the team's progress. There wasn't, you know, a you have to make the playoffs or you're going to lose your job type of situation. And also called him a brilliant offensive mind. You know, that that's obviously the jury's kind of out on that. But Tony, what are your takes on these comments? In my opinion, the comments from Johnson today are indicative of everything that is wrong with the New York Jets. It's why unless things change, and I don't think they're going to, the Jets are going to be stuck in this quagmire for a long, long time. I could understand let, let me let, let me explain why. You know, I could understand why he's not saying Gase is on the hot seat, why there's no he's not saying that you're going to issue a, a playoff mandate and that Gates will be evaluated on whether or not the team progresses throughout the season. That makes sense, and that's understandable at this point in time. But my question is, why is Christopher Johnson making these statements? 
Why is Christopher Johnson making this decision? Shouldn't Joe Douglas, the general manager who they hired a little bit more than a year ago for huge money, shouldn't he be making these statements? Shouldn't he be making this decision? I mean, what has Christopher Johnson done in his football past to basically put him in a position to be deciding this? Uh, he was basically born into a family that made zillions of dollars in the pharmaceutical uh, industry. And now he's basically dictating what should and shouldn't be done with the head coach of a football team. There's no experience there. And his decisions have been disastrous. So my, my opinion is the whole, the whole comments from yesterday and what Johnson was saying to reporters is, is what's wrong with the Jets. Christopher Johnson should be deferring to Joe Douglas. Joe Douglas should be running the football team. And, you know, that's, that's the problem with the Jets is you have an owner who has no football background at all, uh, really w w was able to buy the team with money that was, that was made through, you know, through his family. And he's making all these football decisions that he's not qualified to make. Uh, you know, if, let's go back with Jets history. When Leon Hess was the owner, it was the opposite. Leon Hess let the, was basically hands-off, and he let the football people make all the decisions. The problem was he had the wrong football people making the decisions. All of a sudden, he hired Bill Parcells, and things turned around on the dime because Bill Parcells was an outsider who really didn't care. It was a football guy who made decisions best for the football team. The whole press conference or the comments made to the press on Wednesday – it's what's wrong with the Jets. Christopher Johnson's making these decisions here and there. And nothing, none of the decisions he's made for the Jets have been right. Yet he's already dictating, you know, what's going to happen with Adam Gase. And the fact is this, while I understand and I think the comments that, you know, you have to evaluate Gase and see how the team progresses through the season is justified. And I think that's level-headed. When you call Adam Gase a brilliant offensive mind, you're setting yourself up for disaster. You're setting yourself up for abuse. I, I, I mean, besides the fact that Peyton Manning lobbied to get Adam Gase the job with the New York Jets, and as we reported here, you know, really from the word go, there were problems with Gase in the organization, especially with Mike McCagnan. I mean, what has Gase done to prove that he's a brilliant offensive mind? I mean, he did nothing with Ryan Tannehill in Miami. Uh, Tannehill takes off uh, after Gase leaves, takes off for uh, the, the Tennessee Titans, becomes the, uh, the starting quarterback there, has a terrific season, leads the Tennessee Titans to the AFC title game, signs a huge contract in the offseason. Gase comes to New York, and really it's been all downhill for Sam Darnold because, you, you know, we talked about the game Sunday, and Darnold looked awful during the game. He's not shown any progress under Adam Gase. So I'd like to know why Christopher Johnson thinks that Adam Gase is such a brilliant offensive mind. I mean, that's the idea that's kind of been going around since he worked with Peyton Manning and, and had that big season. But in the end, I mean, Peyton Manning coaches himself. Uh, Peyton Manning does not need a brilliant offensive mind to excel. And, you know, Adam Gase got a lot of credit for Peyton Manning and he's still riding those coattails you know, it's, it's hard to say how much credit he deserves for what he was able to do with Peyton Manning, but it surely isn't anywhere near the amount of credit that Peyton Manning deserves for what Peyton Manning was able to do. 
And what you were saying kind of with the systemic issues with the Jets, I mean, it was the same way when Woody was in charge too, before he went to become a foreign advisor for the government. I mean, you know, Woody was the same way. Uh, Christopher Johnson came on and there was hope and, you know, he said all the right things. I'm going to let the football people make the decisions. Um, you know, it's not going to be about ownership. It's not going to be about us. But at the same time, it hasn't really come to fruition in that way, kind of as you were alluding to. So really, it's just, you know, it's, it's tough being a Jet fan. Um, you know, as, as we know, schedule's tough this year. The defense without Jamal Adams and C.J. Mosley, who probably were the two best players on that defense last year, even though Mosley didn't play. Um, you know, that, that's going to be an uphill battle. I thought, I thought Marcus May played pretty well in the opener, kind of in that Jamal Adams role, but they're going to need more from him and, and some of the other guys around him. If they don't, you know, this is a team that could end up with three or fewer wins on the year. And if they do, and if somehow they end up with the number one overall pick, I mean, is this a team that should be selecting Trevor Lawrence, regardless of how Sam Darnold plays this season, which reality is if the Jets win three games, Darnold probably hasn't shown a lot of progress. Yeah, I think it's a no-brainer. If the Jets somehow end up with the first pick of the draft, and it's sad that we're talking about this uh, in the middle of September, I, I think it's a no-brainer. you got to take Trevor Lawrence. I, I mean, he is – a, a once-in-a-generation type of quarterback. As I said in my mailbag, uh, you know, a week ago, I don't think he's Andrew Luck, but he's darn close to being Andrew Luck. Now, Andrew Luck's NFL career did not turn out the way many hoped for a variety of reasons. Primarily, he got the crap beat out of him in Indianapolis because they didn't do enough to protect him. But he, he, he's an incredible talent where you know, Sam Darnold was my number three rated quarterback in that whole class. I had him graded uh, behind Josh Allen. And I knew that Sam Darnold had a huge upside, but he also had a, a large amount or large potential of downside risk. And I think we've seen a lot of that, especially the past year when he returned from, uh, from the case of mononucleosis. You know, let me say something about Woody Johnson. Let me just remind people what, I, what we had talked about on this podcast uh, after we had said that, you know, McCagnin, there was a rift between McCagnin, Gase and McCagnin, and then McCagnin eventually got fired. I was told more than a year ago that regardless of what happens in the 2020 presidential election, which ironically is a month and a half away, Woody Johnson, uh, the word in the league was anyway, that Woody Johnson intended to return. He was going to step down uh, from his ambassadorship to the United Kingdom, and he was going to return probably to the Jets' fault. Now, there were other issues, as we heard with evidently Woody Johnson has made some comments or reportedly made some comments that are under investigation, uh, which I'm sure is going to be closely looked at if he comes back. And I haven't had any, I haven't heard or asked about any updates on that since we first reported that last summer. But I'll tell you this, you know what? You got to be fair. And if we're going to sit here and beat on Christopher Johnson, and I think justifiably so, you know what? The Jets had a lot of success when Woody Johnson was at the helm. They, you know, when Hermer was there, they were a playoff team. When Rex Ryan was there, they went to consecutive AFC title games. They were, what, a half a yard away from getting to the Super Bowl. So, yeah, I, I mean, you can sit there and, and destroy the owners uh, as uh, New York fans do for basically every sport, whether it's the Will Ponds, whether it's Steinbrenner in the 80s, whether it's uh, Charles Dolan or whoever, Leon Hess. But the Jets did have a good degree of success at times when Woody Johnson was at the helm. That should not be dismissed. And that's it for the 153rd episode of The Draft Analysts, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. 
do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. We'll be back next week with more football. And man, that feels good to say. But until then, for Tony Pauline, this is Chris Tripodi. Good night. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.